Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Last week, if you weren't here, we began a new series from the book of Colossians, How Jesus is Enough for Life. And we're continuing that this morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the pews, follow along in the ESV, which I'm reading from. It's page 983 there. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 3 through the beginning of verse 5. And we're talking about a family of faith, hope, and love. Paul here is talking about the church family at, at Colossae, being a, being a church family of faith, hope, and love, although really the principles here apply to each of our individual families as well, as well as to each one of our lives individually. Colossians chapter 1, and let's look today at uh, verses 3 through the beginning of that fifth verse. Follow along with me. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Father, we, um, we pray that you would use your word today, that your spirit would mold us and form us that, Father, in, in each of our individual lives, that we would increasingly uh, be people who are characterized by faith, hope, and love. We pray that for our, our church family as well. As each of us are growing, as each of us are more rooted and built up in you, that, Father, increasingly our church family would just pulsate with these three things um, Father, that the world might see your glory, your character reflected through your people. So, Father, take your word now and equip us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you knew my dad, and um, one of the things maybe you didn't know about him was that he, he, could, he could really cook well. And he kind of specialized in, in, in soups. He had, uh, he had some just kind of amazing soups, and Melissa's kind of taken those recipes and perfected them now uh, even more. But, you know, the thing about a really good soup is that it's not just the individual ingredients on their own. It's the mingling, the melding of, of all of those in, ingredients together that really make it extraordinary. Paul, in his writings, often talks about this, this mingling of three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And we see this in many texts, uh, not only in Paul, but in other texts as, as well. But just a few examples uh, for you. One that you're probably familiar with is from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where he says at the end of that, now faith Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then at the beginning of First Thessalonians, as uh, he's thanking God for the Thessalonian uh, believers, he says he's remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians, he's talking about the armor of God that we're to put on. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. These are just a few of the many texts in the New Testament where you see often within a single paragraph or even a single sentence these mingling of these three virtues of faith, hope, and love. And our text today is one of those texts as, as well. What does such a life look like? We're talking about a family of faith, hope, and love, but that begins with each of us individually. What does a life of faith, hope, and love look like? Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers of all time, but maybe Spurgeon should be equally known for his godly character. One of his friends, James Douglas, once said this of Spurgeon, Could any face more fully express geniality, friendliness, warmth of affection, and overflowing hospitality? His greeting was warm as sunshine. It mattered not what might be the shadow of, on the spirit or trouble of the heart. It all vanished away at the voice of his welcome. There was a light on his countenance that instantly dispersed all gloom. Which is especially remarkable when you think about the fact that Spurgeon was a man who, who really battled all kinds of physical problems, lived with great physical pain, uh, battled uh, depression as well, but yet uh, through it all, just uh, character, just there was a radiance in his countenance that just reflected faith, hope, and, and love. Well, what if, uh, what if the whole family of God were like that? What if was the, the family of God just, uh, just reflected faith, hope, and, and love? Would not the world looking on say, I want to be a part of that? Well, that's, uh, that's really what we see here in this text. Paul, as he really goes into the body of the letter to the church at Colossae, he's, uh, he's commending them on the faith, hope, and love that he hears about uh, that is characterized by their congregation. But, but he, he actually he begins by thanking God in verse 3, doesn't he? He begins by talking about the source of faith, hope, and love which is God. Let's look beginning in verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, the passage is, is a commendation for the... He, he's, he, Paul has heard a good report uh, about this church, and so he's commending them for their faith, hope, and love, but yet he begins in verse 3 by thanking God for all of that. Why does he begin that way? Well, why doesn't he just begin by congratulating the Colossian church for their faith, hope, and love? After all, when we receive a gift, I mean, we, we, we thank the person who, who gave the gift, uh, the gift to us. My son received a special gift that some time ago, and it was, a, it was a shotgun that he really... In fact, it was more than anything that he wanted beyond what he could ask or, or imagine. It was really the, the gun of his dreams. And so, you know, the greatest blessing when we give something special is, is really ours. And so uh, we, Melissa and I, were just so... <laughs> we were so thrilled to be able to give him uh, this. And, and so we had our phones out and ready to record it when he, when he got it, just to see his re- reaction, which was, was really uh, priceless. It, was just, it just blessed us just to see him uh, so happy. We, we, we love him so much. Um, but, uh, 
but you know, suppose he had received such a special gift and then walked out the door of our house and knocked on our next door neighbor's door and, and thanked them for the gift. I mean, that would, that, it wouldn't make sense. And so in a passage that is really about the faith, hope, and love of this congregation, why does Paul begin by thanking God for those things? Well, it's because God is the source of those things. As we grow in these areas, it's God that is the source of it all. You know, do you find yourself um, growing in your faith? I was talking with someone in our congregation the other day, and they were just saying to me, Pastor, you know, I, I don't worry like I used to. I find myself just, I'm able to trust God more. I'm able to relax more. I'm, I'm, I'm able just to, you know, give situations to him. And I just don't worry like I used to. He was growing in his faith, obviously. Um, do you find yourself uh, growing in your hope? Do you find yourself less and less enslaved to the things of this world because your, your eyes are focused more on the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Um, do you find yourself becoming a more loving person? Do you find yourself becoming more, more gentle and patient and, and gracious um, with, with, with people, growing in love? Well, if, if, if those things are the case, don't, don't pat yourself on the back. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God, because it's God. It's God working through the Holy Spirit that is the source, really, of, of all of that, all of our growth in Christ. So God is the source of faith, hope, and love. Second, we see here the vertical component of that, the vertical virtue, the vertical ingredient of this, which is faith. Faith. He says in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith carries the idea of, obviously, of trust, of reliance. It means that we're relying upon God, but, but equally important um, is the object of our faith. He says, he says, he talks about, I, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It's not just that we're relying, but that we're relying upon the right one. Not just that we're trusting, but we're, that we're placing our trust in the right one. I heard a story about two men that were on a raft, and they were floating down uh, the rapids and they were headed for a, a deadly waterfall. And someone on shore uh, threw a rope out. And one of the men on the raft reached out and he grabbed a hold of the rope. And he was pulled to the shore, to safety. But the other man on the raft saw a big log that was floating by in the current. And he jumped in and he grabbed a hold of the log. And he, he was never heard from again. You know, the object of our faith is crucial, right? You know, the world talks about the, the, the virtue of oh, being, a, being a person of faith. But listen, faith in the wrong thing just leads to hell. It's faith in Christ that we need. He talks about their faith in, in, in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul says in, in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's Christ that we must put our faith in and, and, and Him alone. You know, the city of Colossae was a very pluralistic Greco-Roman city in, in the first century. Um, to, to say that Jesus was the only way 
to salvation was, was considered by most of the people of Colossae to be incredibly narrow-minded. And in fact, a lot of the early Christians, were, they were called by their, they were referred to, their, by, to by their neighbors as atheists because they rejected all the, the, the gods, the, the Greek and Roman gods, and preached that salvation was through Christ alone. We see an example of that preaching in Acts 4.12 as Peter says there that, that, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now listen, it was just as politically incorrect to say that in first century Colossae as it is in 21st century America. But the early Christians did say it, and we must say it. Why? Because we love people. Because we love the truth, we love God's word, and because we love people. We love them enough to tell them the truth. And because their eternal destiny is at stake. It's only faith in Christ that saves. And we see the vertical ingredient, which is faith. And second, we see the horizontal ingredient here, which is love. Love. Verse 4, again, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Notice here that their love was for all the saints. Not just the saints that looked like them. <laughs> Not just the saints that were the same age as them. Not just the saints that they, that they had a lot in common with. Not just the saints who were easy to love. <laughs> he, he, he commends them for their faith for all of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and listen, if we possess the first virtue which is faith in Christ Jesus, it is going to be followed by the second, which is love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that in a plethora of texts um, in the New Testament, that, 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 that true faith in Christ is going to express itself in love for people. If we have the vertical uh, faith in Christ then it's going to be followed by the horizontal, which is love for God's people. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 5 and, and verse 6? He says, For in Christ Jesus there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is what? Faith expressing itself through love. What is genuine faith characterized by? Genuine faith in Christ Jesus expresses itself in what? In love. In love. Beginning with love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then in his, his first epistle, 1 John, John says... Uh, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, in 1 John 4 and, and verses 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
And then in 1 John 3 and verse 14, John talks about really the source of our confidence that we have passed from death to life, that we've been saved. He says we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What is your your confidence that you have passed out of death into life? That you prayed a prayer once upon a time? Is that your source of confidence? Nothing wrong with praying a sinner's prayer, but is that the source of confidence that it talks about here that we've been saved? Is your source of confidence that you're saved, that... um, you know, that you're living a fairly moral life and aren't engaging in certain immoral behaviors, well, that's, 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 that's great that you're not doing that, but, but, but what's, what's, what's the real confidence here that he talks about in First John that, that, we, that we belong uh, to him? Um, you say, well, you know, I'm, 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 I, faithfully, I faithfully attend the church. Well, that's wonderful because you know what? If somebody doesn't care about the church, if they don't care about attending the church or being a member of the church... There's every reason to question how much they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. So, <laughs> glad you're attending the church. Glad you're a member of the church. But what, but what does he say here? He says it's not just enough to attend or be a member. You've got to love the people. Love the people who are there. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says that's, that's our, our confidence that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what does that love look like? Is love just sentiment? Is it just kind of warm, gooey feelings for other people? No. Real love meets the needs of other people. Real love is put into action. James chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Ah, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Real love is not just therapy sentiment. Real love um, expresses itself in in, in action. It it meets the needs of others. When you love someone, you're not just a a, a, a consumer of ministry. You are a contributor to ministry. And what does real love flow out of? What does real love flow out of? It flows out of the gospel. It flows out of understanding how much we have been loved ourselves. Again, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, it says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. This is why we put such an extraordinary emphasis on the gospel in this church. This is why we're always talking about the blood of Christ and talking about the cross of Christ and, and, and going back to the gospel. Because the gospel is, is not just what enables us to be saved initially. The gospel is what enables us to live the Christian life. It's, it's understanding continually how much we have been loved. How much amazing grace we have received. Yeah, I don't know about you, but, but I find that that when the more mindful that I am of how much I've been forgiven and how much Jesus has done for me, that the more, the closer that I stay to the cross, the more tender I am with other people, the more charitable and, and forgiving 
and, and forbearing I am with the faults of other people when I'm aware, first of all, how many faults I have myself and how much God has forgiven me and how much Jesus has done for me. We sung Amazing Grace earlier and John Newton, the author of that song, was, uh, he was known as just a very, very uh, tender, uh, forgiving kind of a person, very compassionate type of person. He writes in that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, and listen to what Newton said. He said, the wretch who has been saved by grace believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him an habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Humble, under a sense of much forgiveness to himself, he finds it easy to forgive others. And then Newton illustrated what he was saying this way. He said, a company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. He should show them pity. We didn't pull ourselves out of pit either. It was all of grace. All of grace. And, and because we have been given such grace, because God in His grace pulled us out of the pit, when we understand that and really understand it at a deep level and the more conscious we are of that, you know what? The, the more we love God and the more we love other people. And it all, you know, it goes back to the gospel. We love because he first loved us. So he gives us the vertical ingredient, which is faith. And then he gives us a horizontal ingredient, which is love. And then he tells us about the spring of faith and love, which is hope. He says in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now follow the train of thought again. Go back to verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, we've already seen that God is the source of faith, hope, and love. But yet Paul is saying here that in some way God uses hope to enable faith and love. That our faith and our love, in some sense, spring forth from our hope that is stored up for us in heaven. Now, how does that work? Well, put yourself in the shoes of the Colossians. Uh, these are uh, people that are living in a pagan city in the Roman province of Asia. The Roman emperor at this point in AD 62 is Nero, one of the most evil men who ever lived, persecutor of Christians. They were brutally persecuted. In addition to their persecution, these people are dealing with all the same problems, you know, that we, that we deal with in a fallen world. I mean, they're dealing with, with sickness. They're dealing with grief and loss of loved ones. They're dealing with Problems with their uh, jobs and uh, financial setbacks and family struggles and just, I mean, all the different things that just characterize life in a broken, fallen world. What enabled them 
to keep trusting God in the midst of all of this? What enabled them to continue trusting, having faith, believing in a world that is broken and fallen in the midst of all of the trials of this life? What enabled them to keep trusting God? What enables us to keep trusting God in the midst of such, of, of such a broken world with, with so many trials? It's because we believe that this life's not all there is. Right? It's because of our hope that the trials of this life are not going to last. They're temporary. We're, we're, we're focused on a forever future that we have in the Lord. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What enables us to deal with the trials and pain sometimes of the present? It's because of our hope. We know these things are temporary. They're, they're passing away. Again, Second Corinthians chapter 4 And verses 17 and 18, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, do you see how faith is enabled by hope? What about love? What about love? How, in, in what sense is love enabled by hope? Well, we, we've seen that real love is not just sentiment. Real, real love is a willingness to give. Okay, it's a, it's a willingness to sacrifice and to, and to serve in these things. Real love is put into action and, 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 and meeting the needs of people. Well, what is it that makes us willing to give up things in the present to meet the needs of others. Well, it's because we believe that our real treasure is not on this earth. That our real treasure is in heaven. Right? That Christ is our real treasure. And the more that we understand that, the more willing we are to let go, to part with uh, the things of this earth. The, the more that we understand that Christ is our real treasure and that our real treasures are not on this earth, the more willing we are you know, to give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our talents, to give of our, our treasures for something higher and something greater because we know that the real treasures are not here on this earth, but that they're laid up for us in heaven. They're stored up for us there, that Christ is our real treasure. Randy Alcorn has a great little book called The Treasure Principle. And in that book, he, he talks about a visit to Egypt and um, on this particular day, he was with a group of friends, and they visited, first of all, a cemetery in Cairo for American missionaries. And, and at this, this, uh, this cemetery, they, they went to the grave of William Borden. William Borden was uh, an heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune, um, uh, Yale graduate. He gave away um, all, of his, all of his fortune um, and left America in his 20s because of his passion to see Muslims come to Christ. Died of spinal meningitis at the age of 25. On his grave, it, um, it uh, said William Borden, 1887 to 1913. And then underneath that, it talked about the sacrifice that he made for 
uh, for, the, for the gospel and his willingness to, you know, to give away a fortune and leave the comforts of America to, to go to Egypt that other people would come to know um, the Savior that had loved him and given himself for him. And at the, the last line of that epitaph on the tombstone of William Borden says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What, what would make someone willing to do that, to give up that much? Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. It was because of his hope, his love for people, his willingness to give and sacrifice was enabled by his hope. William Borden understood his real hope was not anything on this earth. His treasure was Jesus. Randy said, we left, we left that grave and we went to the National Museum, the Egyptian National Museum, and we saw the King Tut exhibit. Another, another young man who died at an early age. King Tut was only 17 when he died. And the Egyptians believed that they could take all of their treasures with them into the afterlife. And so Tut was buried with all of his gold, tons of it. They believed they could take it with them. But when Howard Carter discovered the grave of King Tut in 1922, guess where all of Tut's treasures were? Right there with him. Right there with him. As they had been for over 3,000 years. William Borden's grave was on a back street behind an alley that was littered with trash. Tut's grave was littered with tons of gold. But where is he today? He's in a Christless eternity. William Borden is with Jesus, and not because he gave away all of his money, but because he understood that Jesus was his real treasure. And understanding that made him willing to part with the things of this life because he knew they were passing away anyway. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6:21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would liberate us from enslavement to the things of this earth because we know that our real treasure is stored up for us in heaven. This life is so temporary. All the things of this life are so temporary. They're passing away. Lord, help us as we're going to see later on in this great epistle in, in chapter 3 to help us to more and more to set our minds, hearts on things above, not on things of earth. Lord, that Christ would more and more uh, reign in our hearts as our treasure. So we pray together. Listen, is that the case with you today? Is Jesus Christ your treasure? Have you turned to him and trusted in him? No one loves you like Jesus. He's proven that love. He's proven that love by dying for your sins upon the cross. He lives today. He's raised from the dead. He rules and reigns. Turn to Him today. Turn to Jesus. Trust Him. Forgiveness of sins. New life. Fresh beginning. It's all available. Turn to Christ today and trust Him. Just a moment. We're going to have a song of invitation. 
If you place your trust in Christ today, or if you have at any point in the past, but you've not made that public, you've never publicly confessed that, as Jesus tells us to do, we want to invite you to come. If you've never been baptized as a, as a Christian believer, we want to invite you to come. We'll set up a time for that to happen. Or maybe you're here today and you would say, I want to be a part of this church family. Know that part of, um, part of loving my brothers and sisters in, in Christ is, uh, is loving them enough to, to, to want to be a part of a local fellowship of them. We want to invite you to come today as well. We want to welcome you. Or maybe you're here and just need to pray with someone. There are people here who can pray with you. And come and pray at this altar. It's open for you to do that. Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in all of our hearts now. We lift them to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this service at First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you today.